Welcome to the IEEE Rebooting Computing Podcast, an IEEE Future Directions Digital Studio production. In this podcast, Paolo Gargini, Chair of the International Roadmap for Devices and Systems, shares progress of the IRDS Roadmap, how it will come into motion, and the steps the initiative will take for it to become an actionable roadmap. Paolo dives into not just the future of the IRDS Roadmap, but also into its rich history and how far it has come over the years. Join us as we also hear Paolo's insights into what the future holds and the types of computing he believes will usher us into a new era beyond Moore's Law. Because uh, in the past, uh, the way it worked, uh, you know, component company make component, software company make soft, mm-hmm. and then they slap them together. Okay, that was the past. So Intel built a microprocessor, Microsoft built operating system, and then you had uh, 20 poor guys that tried to make a slightly different PC out of it. And the only option they had, you know, was <clears throat> how much memory, how much this, uh, how, how big the screen, you know, this kind of stuff, okay? But, but nowadays, <clears throat> what happens? By 2002-2003, the power of the microprocessor exceeded the power that you can package. It got to about 130 watts. So to limit this 100, the consumption to 130 watts, the frequency couldn't be enhanced anymore because it's like the more you rub your hands, the harder they get. So the industry had to level off frequency. So one of the major tools to improve performance that was frequency has disappeared. So that's why since then you have all these neuromorphic other stuff because they have to solve it with a different architecture. But as they try to do this architecture, then they come back with you know requirements of what the devices should do. So you can no longer build uh, like it used to be in most cases, a generic uh, microprocessor if you don't know for what it's going to be used. So I'll give you an example. Uh, in the past, uh, the same microprocessor will go to Dell, HP, IBM, to all the same people, right? But now, the one that you have in your phone, the Apple, cannot exceed 5 watts. But the one that you send to the data center, where they can afford to cool it down, can do 150 watts. So the two designs are very, very different. One case you aim for five watts, the other case um, above 100 watts. So this, the requirements of the system where you're going to dictate how you, how you shape your device. Whereas in the past, until 2002, 2003, there was no need to do so. You had this unifying object that was so flexible that you would use it for anything you wanted to use it, okay? So this is really the point that uh, while the two industry could uh, throw parts over the wall and the other guys would figure out how to use them, now the wall has come down and the two groups have to sit at the same table, like Tom and I have to sit at the same table, say, okay, if you want this, I can give you this, so you got to uh, tell me what you want, otherwise I'm going to give you something that doesn't work. So this is the principle. So that's why the, the, the roadmap is an international roadmap for devices and systems in the same sentence, 
Whereas in the past, was an international roadmap for semiconductors that meant I build something and you figure out how to do it. You know, I throw it over the world to you and say, okay, I don't care, you know, do what you want. That's it. It's one, one service for everybody. Nobody, you know, had the chance to customize. The reason why Intel made money, because it would make a processor that was not customized, it was the same, and it was up to the system guy to change the shape of the PC, add more memory, more disk, uh, display, mouse, touch screen, all these other features belong to them. Now it's not precisely the same because if the processor goes in the cell phone, can only consume fats. If it goes there, it can still consume, you know, 100 watts. If it goes into data center and you're willing to cool down, you can design something for 300 watts. And the designs are not the same. So that's, that's why we came together. In the past, you had uh, this wall, again, you had computing and semiconductor. And now we have to live in this way. And actually, you know, these are the semiconductor, call it. And then you have many computing society. And you have to really to work in this way. I think there are many options at this point. I think right now they are all experimental. I don't think uh, any of them has yet emerged as uh, flexible enough. So there are very many promises. I think it will take another few years, you know, because uh, they still have to find some demonstrations that don't require a supercomputer adapt to what you're doing. It has to come down to something manageable. So far. There are a few examples, encouraging, but it's not yet um, at the point uh, that you can point that out. And uh, the, the direction that we're going now, there is essentially to build monolithically logic with memory and so forth on top. It's simply it's an extension of von Neumann. So by no means uh, we have squeezed everything that was possible to squeeze out of it. So there's still a long way until we reach the limit. So I wouldn't be surprised if it takes another 10 years before a real universal architecture emerges. And most likely, there won't be really a universal architecture. There may be multiple, because everything is highly specific to an application. Actually, I'll give you a history of the roadmap, okay? The roadmap began in the early 90s. And uh, the first roadmap was called NTRS. It was the National Technology Roadmap for Semiconductors. The roadmap uh, was primarily a cooperation between uh, government, university, and industry to have a national roadmap that was mostly, uh, to be honest, for the benefit of the government and the university, so that it was a unified vision how the semiconductors were going to evolve. But by in the, between 1994 and 1997, it became clear that uh, some of the fundamentals of how you build semiconductors were going to come to a physical end in the next five to seven years. And the, 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 the size of the problem was so large that it was a high risk for a single region to try to solve it all by itself. So 
in uh, in March uh, 1998, I proposed to the Semiconductor Industry Association to extend the roadmap to other regions. This was uh, presented in April uh, 1998 to the World Semiconductor Council, and all the regions agreed to participate. That means Europe, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and the U.S. In this way, you know, the effort uh, to find a continuation for the standard MOS was multiplied by five. And uh, we would have gotten into a major wall by 2005, 2006, if we didn't start immediately activities. And these activities fortunately started in 1997-98, therefore, uh, the discussion on forming the focus center activity as clusters of universities in the U.S. Uh, initiated. And uh, 2000 or so, similar activities started in Europe and Japan and all the other regions. And so sequentially, 2003, 2005, 2007, this innovation were introduced until 2011, the famous FinFET, that was the last step, was introduced, and this is going to carry the industry for another 10 years. Okay. So that was the major motivation. Okay. Then, uh, by uh, the 2007-2010, with the introduction of the iPhone and the iPad, the model of the industry had drastically changed because companies like Apple could design their own microprocessor and have then a foundry produce it for them. So it was no longer a set of companies producing microprocessor and then the system company implementing them. The system company could design their own microprocessor, have it fabricated, and so the model of the industry had completely changed. And so, in 2012, we decided that uh, we needed to restructure the roadmap to reflect uh, the different ecosystem of the industry. And so, 2014 and 15, we modified the roadmap, and by then, we realized that uh, had grown the, the horizon of the roadmap had grown much uh, broader, and so... While in the past, uh, the roadmap used to be sponsored by the Semiconductor Industry Association, now it was grown much broader than that. And so, through association with Rebooting Computing, we migrated under IEEE. And so, on May 4, uh, 2016, IEEE announced uh, the start of the International Roadmap for Devices and Systems. And uh, during 2016, we laid out the foundations of the roadmap. And uh, this year, 2017, we are completing the first uh, roadmap, uh, that is the IRDS. All the chapters are coming in now, but then you have to do the editing. So I think realistically February 2018, but uh, presentations will already start uh, you know, as we go on you know, in the next uh, few months. We won't wait. Uh, you know, to present some portion, you know, in conferences until the final is put together, okay? But then it will go on the web, and we have the website at IEEE IRDS, uh, where you, you can already find some white papers that outline what the chapters will be. 
as I said, you know, we used to be within the Semiconductor Industry Association uh, circle, okay? But uh, at that time, we had five regions that were already signed up. So now we had to, we had to reinvent uh, the associations, and they needed to be of a different form. So Japan, you know, through the Applied Physics Society, has joined already this effort. Europe, uh, through another effort uh, called NERAID, have joined this effort. Plus, uh, we have included uh, in the management uh, the Computing Society, the Communication Society, and the Electron Device Society. So we are rebuilding according to a new vision of the world that is uh, the by far exceeded the limitation of the semiconductor industry. And now we're taking the knowledge of the society within IEEE plus uh, regional uh, structure already Japan and Europe and forming you know, the new uh, electronic industry that will dominate the next 20 years. The main point is this, I think, uh, I go back to the fundamental point. Let me explain with an example. Suppose you can build an object that is an automobile, it's a boat, it is an airplane. You buy this object and it's adaptable to all these circumstances, okay? At some point, uh, this uh, object is going to be so complicated and expensive that it's cheaper to buy a boat, to buy an automobile, and to buy an airplane. And that's precisely where we are. Essentially, we used to have a single architecture a single type of processors, and now we see that it's impossible, it becomes so complex to do something of this kind, that it's simpler to have a processor for this application, a processor for this application, and this other application. So it is unlikely that it's going to be a single architecture like it used to be, but there is a present, more or less, that will cover all the possible applications. It's most likely that there will be uh, a specific uh, architecture that are optimized for specific uh, applications. And so I, I think uh, in the next two or three years will be clear. At this point, they're still contending you know, for the spot, for this application and so forth. So I, I wouldn't say you know, it's unlikely that it's going to be a dominant architecture, even though, you know, People are very clever, maybe there is. But everybody is trying to aim for a very specific uh, element. Uh, so we'll have to see. So again, let me go to the past. And uh, again, you know, things are similar. But I, what I say essentially, nothing is new, but never is the same. So the very fundamental element of the roadmap uh, consisted that... Um, Research organizations and consortia uh, made their mission to realize the roadmap. So when we used to have Sematec, the stated mission of Sematec was to realize the roadmap, period. So the information of the roadmap would go directly to places uh, for the U.S., to Sematec or EMEC in Europe or Mirai and Celit in Japan. And then these places will begin... Uh, try to realize some of the options that were outlined by the roadmap. After maybe five years, some of these options uh, resulted uh, more uh, advantageous than others. 
And that would bring the industry to the game because the industry doesn't want to invest a lot of money without knowing that you have a return. So say you had you know, the roadmap, then it goes to research organizations that are broad, uh, pre-competitive in general. And so it may take five years in the first phase, five years in the second phase, you know, in the second phase, three to five years. So the system works to maximum efficiency if you have this percolation from the, the roadmap to research to uh, pre-competitive research, then to industrial research and then manufacturing. Okay? Uh, however, um, uh, some of the elements uh, of the intermediate elements uh, have changed. Sematech has dis disappeared. Okay, because uh, the judgment of some people was not to have Sematech. Okay, so uh, it makes uh, the intermediate step a little uh, more complicated and less efficient. Uh, if you want to have uh, prototypes, you go to Emac in Belgium. Then you can make prototypes. So, or university, many few of them at least have uh, clean rooms that they can make some prototypes. And then, you know, eventually we'll get some interest from the, uh, you know, from the industry. However, uh, I worry more about the intermediate step. I'm pretty confident that the roadmap will be very exhaustive of options. And I know that the industry can take uh, something that almost works and make it uh, manufacturable. But unfortunately, the intermediate step has been weakened substantially, at least especially in the U.S., with this is a peer of Sematech, because now you're missing this pre-competitive environment. So some other clusters are emerging. So, you know, for instance, for optoelectronics, we learned last night uh, that you can do something in Albany. And, you know, you can, there are other places where you can do something. You can always go to MIT or Stanford. But, you know, there are times uh, much longer. You know, it takes uh, more effort uh, and so there is an intrinsic inefficiency that has been introduced in the system that makes it uh, more difficult to go from the research phase to the interest of the industry. And uh, so, so that's what we're trying to stimulate. Okay? I don't know the solution at this point. Like what I said, okay, um, from uh, the... So the first processor, you know, the 4004, was demonstrated in 1971. The first application was really for a calculator. You know, it's uh, interesting, okay? So if you look in the 70s, you had HP calculator, TI calculator, right? It was a major breakthrough. You could have a calculator in your hand that could do exponential, besides multiply and multiply, logarithmic. You know, it was really for people working in the scientific world, we reduce it, you know, the time substantially. In the 60s, I had to do everything by hand, okay? So it took me a long time to calculate everything. With this calculator, you can do in minutes what it used to take hours, okay? But that was an um, interesting application, but, uh, you know, it was not the best application. And uh, the, the advance of the personal computer that became, you know, it began as a hobbyist uh, kind of adventure. 
uh, initiate a, a, a type of application where the, the microprocessor that was programmable with the addition of the memory where you go fetch your information and so forth began creating something that was of course used in the scientific community but you know it began to be adopted by uh, the small business associations uh, that could really take advantage of this and then eventually got to the consumers so this was a gigantic change in the business model that uh, took uh, the computing from uh, being you know, government of very large corporation exclusive, you know, the computer would occupy a, a room, you know, 20 feet by 20 feet with 50 programmers, right? So only few universities, few large organizations and few government could afford to have them. But now, you know, progressively the capabilities have reached the consumer. And uh, each generation, you know, every three, two years, you could get uh, a processor where simply by manipulating the technology, shrinking everything down and so forth, the performance will go up by 20-30%. You make everything smaller, it will go faster, so it's intuitive that it will be more efficient because you would do in less time what you could do before in a longer time. However, in 1989, you know, I, Gelsinger and I published a paper that projected by about 2001-2002, we will reach uh, this 115-130 watts, whereby you had to make a hard choice. Power, dynamic power, is the product of the number of transistors times the frequency. And every, these two numbers, we are doubling every two or three years. So if you keep multiplying, it's just a matter of time. Of course, we multiply, and we knew when this was going to happen. Before it reaches a value, whereby when you reach this 130 watts or so forth, the semiconductor stops working. Essentially, it doesn't function like a switch. It's like a leaky, you know, it becomes a conductor. It's leaking so much that you cannot shut it off. So it means it cannot work anymore. And so the industry made, made a hard uh, choice of letting the transistor increase, but essentially leveling the frequency. And went to all different kind of algorithms, shutting down part of the processor, creating multi-core, where you're shutting down some of the cores when one is working, all different kind of elements that would still give you some elements, but if you look at the rate of performance, it went from 20% or so per generation to 4 or 5% per generation. And it actually, you know, it, uh, it took a while for people to realize this. They thought uh, this was a glitch. These smart guys are going to find a better way of building these devices. They didn't realize that this was a fundamental change. They couldn't be changed because it was due to physics. It was not due to any other element. And so progress after 10 years of this, they finally realized that their perfor performance was only go going up by 3, 4, 5, 6%. And it was necessary to do something drastic to really realize with this architecture, with this approach that have worked since from 1971 to 2002, you know, 30 years, something needed to happen. 
And so then all of a sudden, people began coming forward with all these architectures as a possible way of uh, improving the performance. Uh, on the semiconductor side, uh, we began retooling the transistor to have low power instead of high speed. So you can have more of them, even though they're not as fast, but if you're clever enough to fracture your program in multiple parallel paths, the output is still beneficial. But this burden by 2012 had become pretty heavy. There's something beyond these uh, fixes, something fundamental needed to happen. And so then progressively, you know, by 2015, we had this uh, agreement uh, between rebooting computing and uh, the roadmap that something couldn't be done independently you know, you write the music, I write the text, and then we put it together. We had to write everything together. So that's why this came about. It was just uh, the courage of rebooting computing to acknowledge that for 10 years they hadn't been talking about a problem that had been there since 2002, 2003. And on our side, we've been working on ways of improving the devices, but it was not sufficient. And that's why it's absolutely essential that everything that we do is in conjunction because we can optimize uh, by sector the architecture, whichever architecture is best for a specific sector, and optimize the devices for that specific sector to regain you know, benefits uh, in uh, the, the, the rate at which uh, we make progress in uh, practical application, that that's what the consumer see at the end of the day. Thank you for listening to our interview with Paolo Gargini. Discover more about the IEEE Rebooting Computing Initiative and listen to other podcasts in this series by visiting our web portal at rebootingcomputing.ieee.org.